Well, man, we uh, sort of spoke it into existence. We uh, we said that Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh, was going to leave Michigan to be the head coach of the Chargers. And, well, would you look at that? That's exactly what happened. Now, I don't think we should take all the credit because rumors of Harbaugh going to the Chargers, they've been floating around for a while. So we shouldn't get all the credit. I'm just asking for at least part of the credit. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, guys, I'm David Street. Welcome to Total Sports Talk. Street and the guy who apparently is uh, taking dance classes now uh, is Ed Smith. Welcome. Now, as I'm sure you guys have noticed, uh, Matthew's on here. Uh, that's because we uh, kicked him out of the group. Uh, we got sick and tired of him. <laughs> nah, I'm, I'm just playing. Uh, Matthew's not going to be here um, for for a little bit, and he's just he's going through you know normal uh, life stuff. Uh, not a big deal, um, but he'll he'll be back soon. Um, but for now, it's just me and Ed. And, uh, yeah, like I said in the beginning, Ed, um, Harbaugh to the uh, Chargers is official. We knew it was going to happen. It's pretty much been an open secret. Well, the Chargers themselves have now officially confirmed it. And, listen, if you're a Chargers fan, you have to be really excited. Ain't that right, Ed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, their tweet to announce it was, who's got it better than us? Question mark. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, that's what exactly. Roy Myers said, you know, when they had him. Yeah, I mean, listen, we've talked before, or I've talked before about how, um, like, Harbaugh has been working with quarterbacks who, like, they're not terrible, but they're not elite per se. But now he's working with, now he's going to be working with Justin Herbert, you know, after uh, working with guys like Alex Smith, Colin Kaepernick, and uh, you know JJ McCarthy, now he's actually working with a guy who is in the prime of his career and has put up some of the best numbers we've seen from a quarterback in his first you know few few years of the season. And given Harbaugh's track record with quarterbacks, given his track record of being able to succeed w- with quarterbacks. Um, I'm very excited to, uh, you know, see how this, uh, turns out now from my understanding, um, unless I'm wrong, the uh, Chargers still do not have a general manager. And actually Ed, I'm going to let you speak on this because you kind of, you know, made the point that, um, that the Chargers are probably not going to, uh, hire a GM just because they don't want to, you know, spend that much money. So do, is Harbaugh going to be, um, the GM as well? What, what do you think? Uh, they have interviewed several GMs, uh, you know, candidates over the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, but in the end, it is it's still an open position. So with Harbaugh signing with them as of uh, this evening, uh, as of today, we still don't know if that's truly going to be the end all be all of it. Uh, are they going to continue to interview for GM positions? Because I've seen some of those. Uh, interview names come across and it's, you know, it's nobody that really, you know, for lack of a better term, blows my skirt up uh, because 
they're not exciting. They're not, oh my gosh, that's the person that is going to help lead this organization. You know, everything has been in the Harbaugh bucket, you know, for a couple of weeks now. You know, everybody's just kind of forgotten the fact that they don't have a GM either, which they are going to need an experienced GM to handle uh, the situation that they have going on in personnel, salary cap, and all the like. So ultimately, like, what does this mean for the Chargers? Like, I think we're all in agreement that they're, they are now a – they're an obviously better team now with Harbaugh. But are they Super Bowl contenders now just with just because of Harbaugh? What do we like? What what do we think here? I don't think they're Super Bowl contenders yet. Uh, there's definitely a culture change that needs to happen within the organization, and it's you know, and Harbaugh is going to be the person to lead it. He led it at Stanford. He led it in the 49ers, and he led it uh, at Michigan. So he's got the blueprint. He just needs to have the opportunity to implement it. I mean, this is only you know two hours old information for us uh, at the time of filming this, and you know he's got to have a year with Herbert. He's got to have you know some of these big name stars that are on the on the Chargers roster, you know that are selfish players. I uh, kind of move on, you know. And I don't. I'm not saying every player on the roster is selfish. I'm saying that. You know, there may be some, there's a disconnect between all the talent that they have and them winning games. So Harbaugh's got to figure out who's going to help help get on that train to go to the win column, you know, more so than people that are looking to be individual stars in this league. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I think for the most part you are right, but here's why I could see the Chargers potentially being Super Bowl contenders already in year one under Harbaugh. Because if you look at Harbaugh's history, if you look at his track record, everywhere he's gone, um, he's turned programs around instantly, just like that. The 49ers were a mess, and then Harbaugh gets there, and they're I think they're one, they're one they're one game away from going through the Super Bowl. He goes to Michigan, a team that was struggling, turns them around, just like that. Um, so I think he could possibly do the same thing with, with the chargers. And I think it's interesting. Um, you are right. Like with the chargers, he is going to have to deal with, um, me first players. Well, what's, what's interesting with that is that if you recall, Ed, um, he sort of dealt with that when he came to San Francisco, I remember back when Michael, Mike Singletary was the coach and help me remember, I don't, I don't remember who the name of the player was. But there was one specific player that Singletary called out in a press conference, based, essentially called him selfish, you know, not a winner, says, I want guys, guys who can who can win. Um, do you do you remember who, the, who that player was? Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, was it Vernon Davis? Yes, Vernon Davis. I think it was him. Yeah. So Vernon, you know, so Vernon Davis, you know, a, a, guy, a guy like that who completely turned his career around under, under Harbaugh, I think the same thing happened with with the Chargers. Now I understand maybe the argument against what I'm saying is that, of course, the NFL landscape has completely changed over the, over the past ten years, and so maybe Harbaugh won't be able to turn the uh, the Chargers around right away the way that he did with the 49ers. But just the way that I see it, um, I just think he has too much of a proven history of success, you know, for that to for that to not not happen. Yeah, and with Michigan, yes, it took a little bit of time, you know, a couple of years to get, 
you know, the, the Rich Rod and the Brady Hoax out of the way, you know, everything that they kind of just left him with, get those kind of cleaned out to turn that program around to where it has now become the national champion. Uh, so he's got a track record. We know he can do the job. We just need to see it this upcoming season because the game has changed in the 10 years he's been gone. So how does that change the plan that he has to put in place? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of, uh, speaking of Michigan, um, I, I think deep, I think deep down Michigan knew that he was going to leave, especially after he won a national championship, right? Like maybe if Michigan didn't win it all this year, Maybe he would have come back for another for another year, or or maybe not. Um, but now with the title, you know, I think it, I think they all knew it was obvious that he was that he that he was gone. And now, sure, you know, uh, Sharon Moore is going to be the head coach, or he's more than likely going to be the, the head coach. I don't know if that hire was uh, was made official yet, um, but it is going to be Sharon Moore. Um, and listen, I think I think Michigan under Sharon Moore. We'll do we'll do pretty well like the first year or two, um, but I'm interested to see how they're going to do like after his first you know couple of years there. You know, listen, I, I know people were you know giving him a lot of credit um, for being able to win the games that he did with Michigan, but can we just be honest here? He was winning with Harbaugh's system, okay? Like Michigan was not going to change their change their system, okay? That was Harbaugh's system that he ran, so I don't want to take anything away from him. But for the first time, we are going to see um, a brand new system. We are going to see what Moore's system looks like with Michigan and whether that succeeds or fails ultimately, um, you know, we'll just have to see. Yeah, and when you start to take a look at what he's leaving behind at Michigan, my goodness, there's, of course he's going to the NFL because you take a look at one they are getting investigated for Burgergate. Two, yeah. they're getting the FBI is investigating them for a Spygate. Uh, you are losing your top seven offensive linemen that are all going to get drafted. You're losing your bookend uh, defensive pass rushers. You're losing your quarterback. You're losing your all-world running back. You know, and <clears throat> you know. You know, there's there's so much empty cabinet, you know, after winning that national championship. the Yes, the program will be fine. I, I don't want to say that they're in dire straits because all this stuff is leaving. The program will be fine. But instead of starting the process over again with a whole new core of players, it's best that he go to the NFL now and Sharon Moore take over uh, how it were. Now, I have... You know, my doubts on Sharon Moore, uh, because I've seen too many coordinators think that they're a head coach and, you know, that and they follow the guy and keep that system in place. But then that system starts to fall apart because they're not the guy, you know, so that's that's kind of where I I have my doubts. But he could squell all those doubts with a great showing, you know, because it's all about recruiting in college. And recruiting has to do with the actual recruitment, the NIL, and the transfer portal. You know, so can Sharon Moore handle all those along with the offense that he has put in place there? That's what we need to see from him. I'm curious because I'm wondering, like, 
who like what what coordinators have been able to you know succeed uh following um their head coach i mean the most recent example that i can think of um is jimbo fisher when he was bobby bowden's offensive coordinator and then he led fsu to a national championship a few years later now i've said before and i still stand by the fact that i think ultimately i think fsu won won that title in spite of jimbo and not not because of jimbo because they had an nfl team um on, on, on a college field um and i think you know jimbo's deficiencies as a play caller is very very well known um but but nonetheless he has won you know he did win a national title um you know after serving as bobby bowden's uh, offensive coordinator i can't think of anybody else who has been able to follow that same path recently can you ed at the same place uh just yeah. bernard shaw uh, but as coordinators that have been groomed to be head, head coaches, you know, we all look at Megatron out there and Kirby Smart uh, because he was a coordinator for the longest time. But he was given the blueprint and really took hold of it and moved it over to Georgia. But as far as in the same spot, usually when the head coach goes, the, the entire staff goes with him. So mm-hmm. there's very few examples to uh, choose from, but Shaw, I think, is one of those that let the program at Stanford kind of dwindle as the years went on without Harbaugh there to kind of keep everything running the way that he had it before Shaw took over. Yeah, and that's that's more what I was getting at. Like someone who was able to succeed in the same, you know, at the same place and not like go somewhere else and succeed like Kirby Smart did when he went from Alabama to Georgia. Um, and then last thing I want to, you know, ask about more before we uh, move on. Yeah. Ultimately, Ed, do we do you think that that more is going to be the long term solution for Michigan or is he going to be more like, you know, the man like put in place right now and, until Michigan you know, can find uh, someone potentially better down the road. I think they believe that he is the man since he uh, did go six and zero with two top ten wins in Harbaugh's absence uh, this past year. But you made a great point earlier, and that was Harbaugh's team. It wasn't Sharon Moore's team. You know, I can let my my kid, you know, drive the car down to the grocery store, but it's still my car. You know. It's not her car, you know, and when it becomes her car, it becomes different than when I was taking care of it, you know, and that's kind of the way I feel about Sharon Moore taking over uh, the program as a whole. Uh, You never want to be the guy following the guy, Uh, be the guy following the guy that followed the guy, you know, and in time, we'll see if that needs to happen. Uh, But right now I would give it a, I think Sheryl Moore has a, at least a two-year window uh, to show that he can keep the train running uh, the way that Harbaugh had it uh, before there are questions that really uh, become vocal uh, to remove him. So he's got two games against Ohio State. Let's be honest, that's what it is. Uh, two games against Ohio State uh, to prove that he is the guy that will I keep Michigan where it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of uh, coaches uh, moving on, um, obviously um, I think we've all seen the news that Vic Fangio um, is uh, mutually parting ways with the Dolphins, and he is more than likely 
going to be the new defensive coordinator for the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, apparently, um, the move is due to a family reasons, which is totally understandable. The dude is almost 70 years old. I imagine he's probably going to retire in a year, year or two. And when you get to that point, of course, you want to be closest to the ones that, that you love the most. So totally understandable. But listen, even despite his age, like this dude still packs a punch. And if this move ultimately goes through for the Eagles, I think this is going to be a phenomenal hire for the Eagles because one, listen, the Eagles last year, well, this past, you know, this Eagles defense was trash. You get what I'm saying? Like despite, you know, being a top five team on paper, like, you know, talented team on paper, this defense, this Eagles defense was absolute trash. I mean, after, uh, after Jonathan Gannon had left to accept the Arizona Cardinals head coaching job, the, the Eagles, as, as we've talked about before, they went from an elite defense. They went from the best, you know, top two defense to one of the worst defenses, just like that. And you know, they had they had nothing going on on for them. And listen, with a guy like Vic Fangio, Vic Fangio's resume speaks for itself. I mean, everywhere he's gone, defenses have performed at an elite level, at a very solid level. You know, he was the he was the defensive coordinator at one point for the 49ers with Jim Harbaugh back in the early 2010s. And the 49ers year after year under Fangio had one of the best defenses in, in the league. Um, he was also the defensive coordinator for the Chicago bears um, from like the mid to the late 2010s. And under Fangio, the bears had one of the best defenses and, and their defense in 2018 was a top three unit. If I, if I remember correctly, and then the dolphins this year, I don't know if I would say the Dolphins this year defensively were elite, but they were very, very solid, and they did put up very good, you know, defensive numbers under under, uh, under Fangio. Um, but now, and listen, I obviously the deal could fall through. It, it's possible it doesn't doesn't go through, um, but it's looking like it does. And so, Ed, where where do the Dolphins go from here? Assuming they actually do lose, you know, Fangio, and that move does become official, where do they go from here? Uh, they go back to the same well that everybody else is going to at this point. There's so many defensive coaching uh, openings, you know, coordinators that are interviewing for head coaching jobs, uh, so many, you know, opportunities out there for somebody to stick their head up and go, hey, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, it's, and that's just the nature of the NFL. You know, jobs don't last for – uh, more than a couple of years on typically, you know, unless you get into a, a cycle within uh, a championship window. Uh, but even then it's the coordinators that always get plucked. I mean, look at San Francisco, D'Amico Ryan's got plucked last year and he took the uh, quarterbacks coach with him to be his offensive coordinator. So you've got, you know, coordinators that just continue to cycle over and over and over again when it comes to uh, who should be there, you know, that's a question for uh, the GM to figure out which players would fit a scheme from the defensive coordinator that they want to bring in. You know, the GM, he's not, doesn't necessarily have to be a football guy, but he's got to have at least some conversation with the coach, you know, and I, and this is where I think Nick Sirianni kind of failed this year as far as his coordinator hires. You know, you've got to have cohesion on what offense and defense do to work together. I've, I found that the Eagles were a, def, a defensive team 
And then they were an offensive team. They weren't the team. You know, so that's so when you get discombobulated like that, and perhaps you hire somebody that is in over his head a little bit, then you start to see the the monsters that Philadelphia had on that defense just not do what they're supposed to do. And ultimately it got that coach fired. So and that's what I'm talking about. It's just an endless cycle on the on the uh, coordinator front. Yeah, I think this move definitely does seem like a job-saving move for Sirianni. And listen, we've talked before, too, about how um, I think we're all in agreement that Sirianni did not deserve to be fired, but certainly does probably at least deserves to be on, on the hot seat. And that if he didn't, you know, um, this offseason was going to be make or break for him, for him. And if he did not make the necessary moves... Well, then the Philly fans were going to have to, we're going to run them out, out of town, right? Well, now, you know, again, as I said before, it's possible the steal doesn't go through, but if they are able to bring Vic Fangio in, that is an absolutely uh, huge move. And one, as I said before, uh, does save, um, d- does save Sirianni's job. Um, now, correct, now, correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, but Brian, is Brian Johnson still with the Eagles or did they let him go too? Um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I'd have to look it up. Okay. I think I want to say, I want to say they kept him, which listen, the offense regressed as well, man, but the defense, the defense's re- regression was, was way worse. So, um, obviously I think they made, they made, they made the, so he's still there. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe just like, maybe just like let him grow. I mean, the offense regressed, but it wasn't downright terrible, you know, the way that, that the defense was. So um, they definitely made the right choice, you know, prioritizing uh, prioritizing a defense over over offense. And, uh, hey, guys, listen, by the way, you know, what, what Ed and I are, are talking about, we're not just doing this um, out of obligation, okay? This is just what guys talk about in general. And if you've ever wondered what guys like to talk about, if you ever if you've ever wondered the kind of conversations they have, you know, after a long day of work and they're out by the fire, smoking cigars, uh, drinking whiskey, just having a good time, then I would highly encourage you guys to check out uh, Guys Night, um, led by three guys: Rob, Phil, and Dave. Just three guys who just simply speak, you know, what's on their mind. You know, if you've ever wondered what it's like to just dive into the deep thoughts of a man, just wonder, like, you know, what's on, what's on our mind? What do we like to talk about in, in general? Well, that's exactly what you're going to get with Guys Night. In ADP pr- production, um, one, uh, one episode out so far. But if you haven't checked it out, I highly encourage that you guys uh, check it out. I think you're going to love it. And there's going to be uh, more content um, on the way from them soon. So uh, just be on the lookout, guys. Guys Night and ADP Production. By the way, uh, more coaching news, Ed. Uh, Brian Callahan, right, to the Titans. What can you tell us about this? So Brian uh, Callahan has been the offensive coordinator for the Bengals uh, since Joe Burrow got there and has really led a turnaround in a – what is historically a terrible franchise, uh, you know, known as the Bungles for most of my life. <laughs> and that is, yeah. and that's not kidding whatsoever. Uh, but he was, he was hired after a second interview on Monday. They didn't leave him, let him leave the building. They locked the doors and said, you're here now. You're one of us, you know, and that's 
kind of how it came to be. But what they're expecting from Brian Callahan is to have that kind of turnaround at Tennessee with Will Levis. Now, I'm a little skeptical, uh, at the very least, to say that Will Levis is going to be on the same uh, coaching uh, availability that Joe Burrow has been uh, to become an elite quarterback in this league, like Joe Burrow, like Joe Burrow has become. But uh, we'll see what he can do. We'll see what how well he can mold the clay that is Will Levis at this point. Because yes, Will Levis has a great arm, but he at this point he is still turning the ball over way too much, mm-hmm. uh, which we saw in college. You know, and through his rookie season in the NFL, it didn't get any better. Uh, so we'll see what he's able to do schematically. Because remember, this is the same guy that was able to put in game plans with an absolute sieve of an offensive line for Joe Burrow to actually make it all the way to the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know, that was that, that was, was probably a, the worst offensive line to ever make it to the big game. Oh my god, one hundred percent. I mean, if I could get one of those little emoji things that say 100, that's what I'd put across the screen right now. That is exactly what that was. But yeah. you know what? He does have the lineage uh, to look at things the way that they, you know, from a historical standpoint and how they can be moved into a new modern era. Because remember, he is the son of former Raiders head coach Bill Callahan that led the Raiders to the Super Bowl, And, you know, those lessons as you go along, because it isn't just being the son of a head coach, it's all the connections of coaches that he's been tied to over the years. You know, he's got a true background to work with, but we've got to see what players he can develop. And Will Levis is obviously number one on that list. Will he be able to make a turnaround in Tennessee? I hope so for their sake, but I went into this after Vrabel was fired into thinking this is going to be a job that they're going to give a coordinator uh, as opposed to somebody that is a proven head coach because all these, you know, like I was just saying, coordinators cycle in and out you know, trying to become the guy, you know, and sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. I will see what happens. This is going to be Brian Callahan's first uh, head coaching job. And, you know, with the responsibilities of uh, a head coach, is he going to do the play calling? Is he going to, you know, be 100% in charge of the offense? Because that is a large burden to bear for somebody that hasn't done the, the main job before by himself. Yeah, 100%. And I think you bring up a really good point with Levis just being, you know, just turning the ball over so much. And that's like, that's something that I really do not understand about scouts and NFL GMs. I really do not understand for the life of me. Like it it seems like turnovers is the, the one flaw or one of the flaws that they just, for whatever reason, decide to look over. I mean, you remember, you know, Jameis Winston was the number one pick through, you know, through a bunch of interceptions at FSU. Most of it came at his last year there, um, but he turned the ball over a lot, gets drafted number one, and then what happens? 
oh, lo and behold, his his turnovers, you know, didn't go away. And remember, he threw 30 picks his his last season with, with the Buccaneers. So I really – what's that? He had 30 touchdowns. Yes, he did. And really, if you think about it, he actually had 60 touchdowns. It's just that 30 of them, like, you know, kind of went over to, to, to the other team, right? But, yeah, no, really, Ed, like, I just – I do not understand – why they just look overlooked turnovers and I mean, listen to the, to the best of my knowledge, maybe I'm mistaken here, but one quarterback I can think of that turned the ball over a lot in college, but turned out all right in the pros um, is, uh, is Matt Ryan. If I remember correctly, I think he threw quite a lot of interceptions when he was at, when he was at Boston college, but he turned out pretty okay. But like for the most part, why can't GMs, why do GMs and NFL scouts constantly overlook these turnovers that they that they commit in college? I, I, I don't get it. Because <clears throat> they fall in love with the metrics. They fall in love with the big arm. They fall in love with the whiteboard. You know, it, these, these things that don't, you know, you get the parts that are greater than the whole. And that's, that's where a lot of these turnover-prone quarterbacks wind up being. Because Jameis Winston... He's got all the parts in the world. He's got all of them. What he doesn't have is the whole. He's got the arm strength. He's got, you know, the vision. He's got the anticipation. He's got the touch. He's got all these things. But he does not have everything as a combined package. You know, you mentioned Matt Ryan. You know, turnovers at Boston College is just kind of what they do. Uh, because <laughs> it's... Yeah. It's not the greatest level of competition, but when you're talking about Will Levis, he came out of Kentucky, which was regarded as an up-and-coming team, a team that can make the next step in the SEC of all places, and yet he still just would give up the ball at the worst time possible, and they could not make that next step. So that's that's where that comes. Now, one point I, I forgot to mention before is this is going to be an offense that does not have Derrick Henry. So mm-hmm. he will not have that security blanket of just being able to turn around. Hey, King, take this and bully some people. That's because <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what Derrick Henry does. Uh, so it is going to fall on Will Levis's shoulder this upcoming season. Do we do we think that there's a high possibility that the Titans could actually have the worst record in the league, or at least one, one of the worst records? Oh, if they stick with what they have currently, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm just when you look at that roster. I mean, nothing about that roster impresses you. I mean, Will Levis doesn't doesn't impress you, and obviously with without without Derrick Henry. Like you said, they lose that security blanket. It's like, who do they have? No Derrick Henry. Anthony Hopkins, even if he's still there, is over the hill. Um, You know, he may catch some flashes of the player that he used to be when he was in Houston, but he's he's just not that guy anymore. Um, There's, I'm with you. There there isn't much that I can look at that roster and go. That excites me. That's something to build off of uh, on offense or defense, quite frankly. 
Yeah. I mean, certainly at the very least, they are going to be easily the worst team in the AFC South because the Jags, Colts, and Texans are all so much, so much better than them. Um, like, it's it's not even funny. Um, but, you know, Ed, um, I want to move on to move on to baseball because obviously we've got some news there, right? We've, you know, we've got some people inducted to the Hall of Fame. And, Ed, I'm going to let you uh, uh, take over, um, you know, so uh, – we know a certain third baseman and you know, what? I'm just going to stop talking because you seem very eager to talk. So take it away, my friend. Oh, I, you know, I was very happy to see Adrian Beltre finally, you know, get it, get into the hall. And it's not a finally, as he's been waiting a long time for this vote to happen. It's because he has deserved to be in the hall well before his playing days were over. I mean, this might be, the best, you know, at least top three third baseman in the Hall of Fame, which there's only 19 of them, by the way. That's by mm-hmm. far the the smallest amount of position players in the Hall are third basemen. That's crazy. Uh, you know, he had uh, four all-star appearances, five gold gloves, four silver sluggers, eight MVP considerations. You know, he is the – here's a fun one for you. Uh, he retired the all-time leader amongst third baseman career hits, RBIs, and ranked third behind Mike Schmidt and Eddie Matthews, of all people, in home runs. I mean, that, and only one of five players to have a home, 100 home runs with three separate teams. Now, considering the free agency of baseball, now, the separate teams thing, I totally get. But this is a guy that came to the ballpark and went to work from the day that he showed up uh, from the Dominican Republic. Uh, he, you know, has a total of 21 years uh, mm. in the league, in MLB. Uh, eight with the Rangers, seven with the Dodgers, five with the Mariners, and that one stopover over in, over in Boston. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but one of the things I wanted to point out that, I found impressive was his average of of strikeouts per year. And this is a league that has continuously had 150 strikeout, you know, per year guys, less than a hundred, less than a hundred strikeouts per year on average over 21 seasons with the way the game has evolved. That is to me, very impressive. And it's not like he uh, disappeared in the playoffs either. You know, in fact, in the playoffs, uh, he still had a 261 average. He still had uh, 297 on base, uh, 450, uh, you know, slugging, 747 OPS. I mean, the guy was just phenomenal uh, on the diamond. You know, and it, I think we all remember the one iconic moment for Adrian Beltre was the 2011 world series where he basically dropped to a knee and blasted a home run over the left field wall uh, to tie uh, the tie a game in there, you know, that, and he's such a character as well. You know, one of the quirky things I remember uh, from him is when his good friend uh, King Felix uh, you know, struck him out, and 
It was just the worst swing I've ever seen <laughs> anywhere. I've seen three-year-olds swing better than this. And, you know, everybody got a good laugh out of it. But later in the game, guess what he does? Hits a home run dead center uh, off of King Felix, you know, just as a, yeah, I got you too. You know, one of those things. And, you know, anybody that remembers the uh, batting circle incident with the umpires, that was always a fun one. Uh, because he used to run the uh, batting circle back almost behind the plate so he could get a good look at the pitcher uh, before his turn. And the umpires were getting mad at him. so he, And they were like, move it back over there. And he was like, no. And then moved it directly behind home plate. You know, just to say, oh, well, I'm in the batter's circle. So what are you going to do to me now? Yeah. You know, it, it, you know, that's one of the great things with a player like Beltre is he worked so hard. He did so much, but he had so much fun doing it. And it was just a joy to watch him, especially in his last seven years here in Texas. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, but was Beltre on those uh, Rangers teams that made back-to-back World Series appearances? Yes. Okay, yeah. I definitely, I definitely do, do uh, I definitely do remember that now. Um, and listen, obviously, you know, Beltre wasn't the only one to uh, make the Hall of Fame. We had a couple other guys make the Hall of Fame too. Uh, Joe Maurer, formerly of the Minnesota Twins, and uh, Todd Helton, formerly of the uh, Colorado Rockies. Um, you know, uh, Maurer is a first ballot Hall of Fame. He gets in the first time of asking, and then meanwhile, it took Helton six or seven times to finally get into the Hall of Fame. And you might be wondering, like, well, why did it you know, take that long? And, and we're going to, you know, we're going to get there. Um, but ultimately, like, when you compare their, their careers, Ed, I think you can make a case that um, that Maurer ha- had a more impressive resume just based on accolades alone. Um, I mean, they both have they both had the same amount of uh, gold gloves. Uh, they were both three time gold glove winners. Um, mm-hmm. But Maurer did have uh, more silver, silver, silver sluggers. Uh, than uh, than Helton did uh, five uh, versus four. Um, now listen, when it comes to Helton, what's that? And an MVP. Yes, and actually, um, I want to get to that in, in a bit because um, that's actually that actually plays into my thinking as to why it took Helton so long to get into the the Hall of Fame. But when it comes to Helton, listen, I know people might think that the reason why it took him so long to get in was, is because uh, Coors Field, like, you know, makes it easier for batters. And listen, when you look at the home splits versus away splits for Helton, there's no denying it, okay? He, before, he performed much better at home than he, than he did on the road, okay? Like, he wasn't, he wasn't terrible on the road, but he was so much better at home than, on, than he was on the road, okay? Now, should that, should that have factored into, you know – him going to the hall of fame, whether it did or not, I don't know. But personally, I don't think it should have because last time I checked, there's no criteria in the hall of fame voting that says, Oh, by the way, if you play at uh Coors field, uh, you're not going to get in the first time of asking, but no, ultimately Ed, maybe this is a bit of a hot take. I think ultimately, I think what hurt Helton, I think the reason why it took him so long to get in, whereas it took, you know, Mauer just one time to get in, I think it. I think it is the fact that Maurer did have an MVP and Helton never won MVP. 
You know, um, Helton put up great offensive numbers. You know, he, uh, you know, he, he put up great bat- batting numbers. But unfortunately for him, there was never a year where Major League Baseball recognized him as the best player in that league. Whereas Joe Maurer um, got that distinction one time. And because Joe Maurer um, got recognized for, you know, one year for being the most valuable player in his respective league, that helped his chances a lot more than it did with Todd Helton. What, what do you think? Are you in agreement here? Do you, do you see it differently? What, what do you think? Well, I'll add, add to that point in the fact that uh, Joe Maurer being a catcher uh, with all the accolades that he got, it's so much harder to do it as a catcher than it is playing in the field. You know, playing, you know, just flat simple. Because, you know, the absolute beating your body takes being a catcher between your knees, your legs, you know, because you need your legs to bat. And, you know, there really hasn't been a catcher that has hit the same way that Joe Maurer has maybe outside of Mike Piazza. Uh, You know, when you're talking about longevity of, you know, having that kind of success, you know, you know, when it comes to Maurer, he spent 10 years behind the plate before spending his last five years at first base. But through that whole time, one thing that you could always count on, count on him for is, you know, being offensively productive within the lineup, not to mention, you know, the uh, gold gloves that he won as well, uh, you know, which he won three of those as well as three batting titles. You know, so he was able to do it on both sides, both defensively and offensively. Uh, one of the things I find with Helton is we only seem to talk about the offense when it comes to Todd Helton. And when you're talking about the offense at Coors Field, it all kind of leads into that argument that you're saying, you know, there's not as much substance there as there is when you're talking about a player like uh, Joe Maurer. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to Joe Maurer, Ed, um, is do we think that he's probably like the greatest catcher we've seen in the 21st century? Like I know, I know you might make a case for Yadier Molina and obviously like Yadier Molina is a phenomenal play player himself. And, you know, of course, when it comes to Jim Hour, I mean, the twins don't get nearly as much national recognition as the St. Louis Cardinals do, but but what like what do you, what do you think like is Joe Maurer the best catcher that that we've seen in the 21st century? Um, I'm going to be a little biased here. I don't think it's either one of them. I okay. uh, I'm a I'm a staunch defender of Ivan Rodriguez, Pudge, uh, because you know even if he was you know. It caught in the web of the whole PED, you know, cloud, whether he did it or not, you know, is not for me to say, but this is, that's a guy that, uh, hit for average, hit for power, uh, was fun, was one of the best defensive catchers I'd seen. I mean, just very crisp with the way that he handled the plate and handled, uh, you know, defensive alignments as well as pitching staffs. I mean, this is a true five-tool uh, catcher that we're talking about here. Uh, so I'm going to say uh, Pudge Rodriguez is the best catcher I've seen. Uh, it, 
you know, and you say 21st century. So I'm assuming that you are more talking about after, uh, say, 2005, 2010. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas Pudge Rodriguez's career started in the 90s and just kind of tailed off uh, around that time period that you're kind of referring to. Uh, but anybody that has not done not done so, look at what of what Pudge Rodriguez was able to do and accomplish, and just the jaw dropping plays that he was able to make. Uh, I'm gonna have to lean that way uh, more so than Maurer or Molina, although I take nothing away from those guys. Uh, I mean, we have definitely seen three of the best catchers possibly ever in baseball over the past 20 years. And, you know, you know, Maurer's one of them. Uh, Molina's another, but definitely I put Pudge above them all. You know, fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. Um, Well, guys, that's about all the time that we have for you. Uh, Thanks again so much for tuning into another episode of a, of a total sports talk guys be sure to check us out on twitter youtube rumble uh, instagram and don't just check out our show uh check out other shows as well like guys and i i mentioned them um er- earlier during my uh, monologue uh check out uh unfiltered um coming soon and uh, check out quirks of creation and check out all the great content um produced by the uh, adp team uh you are not going to uh want to miss it but in the meantime guys we are rounding third and headed for home